Please turn your Bible one final time to the book of Luke. This is on page 832 if you are using one of the pew Bibles provided. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we invite you to take that one as a gift from us, as a means of strengthening your faith or growing in your understanding of what the Bible is and who Jesus is. This book of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. I don't know if you've realized that. I've probably said it a few times, but uh, when you include the second volume that Luke wrote called the book of Acts, we find that he wrote more than any other New Testament author. Maybe you expected it was John who wrote uh, five New Testament books or Paul who wrote many, but Luke is the the most prolific New Testament uh, author. If this is your first time with us, or perhaps first time in a really long time, then uh, you've come on a great day as far as we're finishing up a very long book, and uh, you're going to get a bit of a review, uh, but also hopefully a a good conclusion to this series. Uh, The first three chapters of uh, Luke are an introduction to Jesus, prophecies of his birth and the birth of John the Baptist, the stories of their birth, and reactions to the birth of John and Jesus. You also have the beginning of John's ministry, paving the way for Jesus, and uh, genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to Adam, which was then emphasizing his humanity. Chapters 4 through most of chapter 9 recount Jesus' ministry in Galilee, his temptation in the wilderness, a sermon that summarizes the purpose of his ministry, his calling of disciples, his healings, and his teaching. Chapter 9, verse 51 is kind of the hinge of this whole book. It's, uh, in, a, in many cases, commentators, if they're going to write two volumes, they'll divide their, their commentaries there at chapter 9, verse 51. Uh, this is the point where Jesus begins to head for Jerusalem, a journey that takes us into chapter 19, when he enters the city triumphantly, but immediately clears the temple of people seeking to make a profit in the temple. They were turning the, uh, this place of worship from a house of prayer into a den of robbers, Jesus said. Chapters 21, uh, 20 and 21 recount Jesus' teaching and activity in Jerusalem before being betrayed into the hands of sinful men who crucify him in chapter 23. His tomb is found empty in chapter 24, which then describes his appearances to his followers to their utter amazement and shock. And that takes us up to our passage today, chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. Please follow along. Again, this is on page 832 if you need a Bible. Please follow along silently as I read aloud from Luke 24. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This passage describes an essential element of the gospel. Jesus did not come to earth to stay on earth. He came to earth, ministered, and then ascended to heaven, even as we just affirmed together in the Apostles' Creed a few minutes ago. If you happened to watch the Super Bowl this past February, perhaps you saw a few ads that surprised you. I think that's often the point of many Super Bowl ads. Companies spend millions of dollars for a 30-second ad. I think a typical ad is about $7 million for 30 seconds. One organization, I should say, spent about $20 million to promote Jesus. I don't know if you remember those ads. They're called the He Gets Us campaign. Maybe you've seen or heard their ads elsewhere while attending a baseball game or listening to the news on the radio. Maybe you've seen their hats or their shirts, or their stickers, which you can get for free on their website. 
The He Gets Us campaign is intended to get people to think about Jesus in a new way, either fully endorsing, so without either fully endorsing or uh, fully exoriating this campaign. I simply want to say that Jesus has gotten a lot of attention over time, and this commercial series, this campaign, is intended to keep that attention going or to get the attention back on Jesus. I would say, though, that if you want to get to know Jesus, the best place to go is not to YouTube to watch those ads. You're welcome to do that. But the best place to go is to the Bible, and particularly to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I think it's safe to say, and even charitable to say, that the the creators of the He Gets Us campaign would agree with me on that. They're just trying to get you to go to the Bible, not just back to their website over and over again. It is also better to go to the four Gospels, if you want to know who Jesus is, than it is to go to, say, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. You can find lots of books about Jesus in those locations. You can find books about how Jesus is the ultimate CEO, or the entrepreneur, or the leader, or the visionary, or the public speaker. And all of those probably take snippets from the Bible and then force those snippets into their preconceived notion of what it looks like to be a, uh, a public visionary or public speaker or leader or CEO and so forth. But Jesus didn't come to teach us how to be a leader. He didn't come to teach us how to draw a crowd or how to raise money. So what did he come to do? Who was this man? And those are the primary questions that all four gospel writers seek to answer, and particularly in our case that the gospel of Luke has sought to answer. We've been studying this gospel for quite some time off and on. We studied chapters 1 and 2 in December and January of 2020 and 2021. We studied chapters 3 through 11 from September 2021 to June 2022. And we studied chapters 12 through 24 from September 2022 to April 2023. So again, off and on, but by and large, this has taken up a good amount of time for us. We conclude this story of the life of Jesus from the book of Luke today by studying the final note that Luke gives us in this first volume of his two-volume work. Again, the second volume is called the Gospel, or, uh, the, the, the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of Jesus through the Spirit. You can call it different things, but the book of Acts. Luke was eager to give an accurate, orderly account of the life of Jesus for the benefit of a man named Theophilus. And I'm going to read just the first few verses. You don't need to turn there of the book of Luke to tell you this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And he tells you exactly why he wrote this account. So that you may have certainty concerning, concerning the things you have been taught. In other words, Luke knew this wasn't the first time Theophilus had heard about Jesus. Theophilus knew, just like everyone else living in the first century, who Jesus was, but he had some questions. What do you think those questions might have been? Who is he? What did he do? Why should he demand so much attention from us? Why should we give him so much attention? What was it that Jesus was seeking to do? And then what should I do about it? 
Those are the questions that Theophilus probably had and that Luke was trying to answer. And Luke told him, here's why I'm telling you this, so that you can have certainty. So that these things aren't just rumors, but you know the truth and you know them in an orderly way. Luke does something similar in the beginning of the book of Acts. He says, in the first book, referring to Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, which is our passage today in Luke 24. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering. That's chapter 24. By many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. That was one of the last few verses we studied last week. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Luke is quoting himself when he's recounting what he had done in the book of Luke. And so as we conclude this story today by studying this final note that Luke gives us, in this final section... Luke teaches that Jesus fulfilled his mission and ascended to heaven. That's the simple point of these last four verses of this very long book, the longest book in the New Testament. Jesus fulfilled his mission and ascended to heaven. And the response that you should have is the response that the disciples themselves had in the last two verses of this book. Worship Jesus forever. That's what you should do after you read through a book like Luke. And I want to encourage you to go back and read it again and again and to take notes on it and to draw lines from one passage to another in your Bible and to highlight with different colored pencils, if you so desire, different themes that Luke brings up because he is a master. He has crafted this book in a masterful way. He uses the same kind of language over and over again to make your brain click and to make you think, oh, that makes me think of that passage back there and go and find it and draw the lines then and draw circles and so forth. So Jesus fulfilled his mission and ascended to heaven. Worship him forever. And this passage is simply broken into these two parts. In verses 50 to 51, Jesus fulfilled his mission. Jesus fulfilled his mission. This wasn't actually the first time that Luke talked about the ascension of Jesus. Of course, Luke wrote this story all kind of at one time, it seems, well after the fact. So it's not like he was learning details along the way of, oh, Wait, Jesus ascended to heaven? Wait, i got to fit this in. He knew all along that Jesus had ascended to heaven. And so he had hinted about this a few times earlier in the book. One of them was in chapter 9, what we know, a passage that we know as the transfiguration. And so we read in chapter 9, verse 30, Behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which is the Greek word exodus, referring to his ascension when he exited the scene, so to speak, when he removed himself from earth, when he ascended to heaven. And so he, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Just a few verses later, in this key verse that I told you about a few minutes ago, chapter 9, verse 51, the hinge of the whole book of Luke. Luke writes, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is the key turning point in which he turns his face to Jerusalem. He starts moving toward what he knew was going to be his suffering, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. But the days drew near for him to be taken up 
That's a reference to his ascension as well. So Luke knew the end of the story when he wrote those things. He knew that Jesus never intended to stay on earth as part of his first coming. It was not an accident that Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus knew, and Luke knew, that it was not Jesus' purpose to stay physically on earth after his incarnation. He had a mission to accomplish, essentially the redemption of sinners, but once Jesus had fulfilled that mission, then he ascended to heaven. What you'll notice in this brief passage is that Luke doesn't spend any time telling us what Jesus is doing right now. That's a very important theological question to ask and one that Luke kind of dips his toes into a little bit in the book of Acts. But essentially, we leave that question up to the author of Hebrews, to Paul, and some of the other apostles who wrote the New Testament epistles. They tell us far more, especially the book of Hebrews, about what Jesus is doing right now. This passage simply tells us he fulfilled his mission, and the way you know that is that he ascended to heaven. He wasn't going to go back a day too early. Just like a friend of mine uh, said a few days before he died, I know I'm not going to die a day too early. In that same way, Jesus didn't ascend a day too early. And we can have confidence then that the Lord uh, has providentially arranged all the details of our lives to work into his perfect plan. We read here that Jesus led his disciples out to Bethany, a place that had been a a particularly important point of various scenes earlier, especially in chapter uh, 20 and 21. But as he led them out to Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Oh, isn't that nice? He blessed them. Well, bless your heart kind of a thing. No, I don't think so. I think he has a very, I think Luke has a very specific idea in mind of what Jesus said while he was holding up his hands and blessing his disciples, which he continued to do even as he began to ascend to heaven. What do you think Jesus was saying while he was ascending? Most theologians that I kind of asked that question of this past week answered it with a passage that you are probably familiar with if for no other reason that you stick around the last couple seconds of our worship services. But every four weeks or six weeks or so, I quote generally, sometimes with mistakes, from Luke, I'm sorry, from Numbers chapter 6, in which Jesus was probably quoting, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So Jesus wasn't just giving nice little quips that we can then put into Hallmark cards or something like that. Jesus was giving you the Word of God, was giving these disciples the Word of God. Very likely this would have been the passage that he had because the book of Hebrews especially emphasizes that Jesus was the great priest who blesses his people, who intercedes for his people, and this was the, the, the benediction, the words that All of the Old Testament priests would have been quoting when they came out of the temple day after day, doing their priestly work. They would have been quoting that passage from Numbers chapter 6. But Jesus doesn't just quote this benediction, he lived it. It is through Jesus the Lord that God blesses us and keeps us or preserves our lives. It is through Jesus that God is gracious to us. It is Jesus, who is the one who mediates God's peace to us, and Jesus reveals God perfectly. This theme is abundantly clear throughout the New Testament. 
Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And if I stopped right there, you say, well, that sounds really nice. But Paul goes a little bit further. How did he reveal the knowledge of the glory of God? A, a theme similar to what Michael read from Habakkuk 2 today. How did God shine light onto his people? In the face of Jesus Christ. He is the one who blesses you by the face of God shining upon you. John 1, 14-18 continues this theme. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And then Hebrews 1 says that God has spoken to us in a variety of ways, in various times, in various places, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. Verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what was important for Luke here? was that Jesus had done all He came to do. He didn't leave one stone unturned that He came to turn. Jesus took His throne, having defeated His enemies by His death and resurrection. And we sometimes sing of this theme when we sing Charles Wesley's hymn, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Jesus, the Savior, reigns, the God of truth and love. When He had purged our stains, He what? He took His seat above. It's referring to his exaltation, to his ascension, to the fact that he had finished his mission. The song, Look Ye Saints, the Sight is Glorious, perhaps a little less known. I didn't ever sing that song growing up, I don't think. Uh, First time I heard it was when I was in Australia in 2005. And that church belted that song out. And it was beautiful to sing it with them. Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight returned victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him, crowns become the victor's brow. They fit on this victor, on his brow. Jesus fulfilled his mission. That's what verses 50 through 51 tell us. So he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into heaven. Jesus fulfilled his mission. Verses 52 to 53 tells us that Jesus deserves our joyful worship. Jesus deserves our joyful worship. And in many ways, these last few verses are taking themes that have been popping up. Almost like the way you have some springs popping up throughout the state of Florida. Perhaps you've been there. And every Here and there you walk through a forest and there's just a spring kind of bubbling up. And it's like that. You have these themes that are all kind of converging here in the last few verses of this book. There are many incidents throughout this book but a lot of them are telling the same kinds of stories, the same kinds of details. And I'll tell you, one of the ways you can pick up on that and observe those is by having what I've been using throughout this entire series, which this is just a scripture journal. So it's English Standard Version, Crossway, and Wheaton publishes these. Probably costs like $4, and basically every single page is just loaded with notes and circles and lines and arrows and all kinds of other markings. And it was a joy to read through this yesterday, one last time, maybe I'll do it again soon, and just 
look again at all the applications I wrote down, all the stories I thought oh, I should maybe consider telling this story, but particularly drawing lines like, oh, that connects with that there. And flip the page back a few more times and it uses that exact same phrase a few times there. And these words in chapter 24 are the exact same words he used in chapter 2. And all of that's in English. It's nice to know Greek and Hebrew, but if you can read, you can benefit from this. And so I encourage you to get your hands on one of these scripture journals. Even the words great joy here in verse 52. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. What does that make you think about from elsewhere in the book of Luke? Maybe chapter 2, verse 10, where the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. I don't think that was an accident that Luke used the words great joy only two times, one at the beginning and one at the end. The fact that the disciples returned and were blessing God in, chapter, or in verse 53 here reminds us of the shepherds in chapter 2, verse 20. They returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They specifically return to the temple, which is where the book begins. You have Zechariah offering sacrifices in the temple, the place where God's presence was portrayed. This is where the book of Luke began, with Zechariah offering these sacrifices. This is where the book of Luke ends, with people worshiping God. What did that worship look like? I think we can fill in a few ideas, primarily from the book of Acts. Their worship looks like Singing, even when it's not popular, even when your heart is hurting, even when you're in jail. That's part of worship. And I hesitate to lead with that one because sometimes we conflate the two terms. Like worship and singing are the same thing. Worship is way bigger. Singing is a significant part of worship, but it is not equivalent to worship. But I do think I want to encourage us one more time. This was something I had written in that journal that I saw again yesterday. Sing all the songs that we choose to feed you to, feed you with every Sunday. Perhaps your response to that would be, I choose to sing the songs that I like. And my response to that would be, that is exactly what the evil one wants you to do. Pick and choose which ones you like, which ones kind of fit your background or your personality or your level of energy that day, Satan wants you to not sing the songs that you don't like. Because that could make somebody else next to you not want to sing the songs. Which makes them miss out on the encouragement and the truth that that song could receive. Most Sundays, we have at least a handful of people in this room that don't read. Just at least two or three. Lord willing, we'll have even more like that soon. But by you singing the songs, you're teaching those people who don't read the truth. Satan does not want you to do that. So one of the ways that you can bless God, return and worship and rejoice with great joy is by singing all the songs. That's one way you can do that. What I would like to do at this moment is get a little bit of help. I don't know if uh, Nathan, if you could help me out here. And Wynn, I know it's your first time here, so welcome to the car- party. We're going to give you some of these too. If you guys could hand these out to everybody, that would be great. Thank you. So this is a document that I put together trying to summarize 24 chapters into one page. You can be the judge of how well I pulled this off. What I'm going to do is, once you have it, I'm going to read this aloud. And what I encourage you to do 
I'm not going to check up on you to see if you did this. What I encourage you to do is go home at some point this week and read through all of Luke, and you be the one who fills in the Scripture references for each of these lines. Every single line, basically every single word on this page, comes straight from the book of Luke. From the English Standard Version, you can use a different translation, though, and find the same language. But over and over again, you'll find scriptural language here because I'm basically quoting the Word of God over and over on this page. So once everybody has these, there should be 40, I believe, so there should be enough. If not, uh, maybe you can share with somebody near you. Thank you, Wynn. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but you were sitting near Nathan, so it worked out well. Anybody else need one before I begin reading? Okay. You should be able to catch up here. So, uh, the summary sentence is there at the very top in bold, in, uh, in the center. Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills God's plan by seeking and saving the lost. If you read ten commentaries, you're going to find ten that say something similar to that. That's what I found. Anyway, uh, that's, that's a pretty simple way of summarizing this whole book. Luke asks and answers three main questions. Who is Jesus? What does it look like to follow him? And how did people respond to him? Jesus is the divine Son of God and Son of Man, King of Israel and ruler of all creation, the true Adam, David's Son and David's Lord, the friend of sinners and the Savior of all who repent and believe in him. Born of a virgin by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He successfully resisted temptation and lived a perfect life, flawlessly obeying God's law. He preached and fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, demonstrated his authority to forgive sins, showed his kingly authority over demons, storms, the Sabbath, and all forms of sickness. He ministered to all who would respond rightly to him, women, children, lepers, outcasts, outsiders, and notorious sinners. He chose not to kill his enemies, but to be killed sacrificially by them. In so doing, the innocent was cursed and the guilty were released. He rose triumphantly from the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death. He ascended to heaven, having fulfilled all he came to do. He will come again in glory and judgment. Jesus taught that the first is last and the last is first. The mighty ones are cast down while the lowly are lifted up. His followers lose now to win later while the wicked win now to lose later. The rich become poor and the poor become rich. The proud will be humbled and the humbled will be exalted. True greatness is not found in having a large following, being wealthy, or enjoying short-term success, but in humble service. He emphasized the importance of what is internal, a heart devoted to God, over visible fruit, what is external. Invisible treasure stored up for the next life is of far greater value than visible possessions or accolades in this life. The wicked person with barns stocked with possessions for the future is poor. But the widow who gives a penny and a heart of worship is rich before God. Jesus' true family is made up of those who hear his word and obey it. Jesus provoked a wide range of responses from people. The crowds marveled, wondered, and were amazed and astonished by him. They feared, praised, and rejoiced in him, responding by worshiping, glorifying, and praising God. Those closest to him treasured up in their hearts what they saw and heard. All who encountered him had to make an ultimate choice to follow him in faith-filled repentance or to reject him and endure the just wrath of God. Some of society's least likely people responded positively to him, demonstrated faith in him, and were used for his purposes, 
including humble shepherds, notorious sinners, and bedraggled fishermen. To follow Jesus means means trusting him alone for salvation from the judgment sin deserves. It means hearing him, being devoted to him, sacrificing for him, and being willing to leave family, friends, and possessions for him. Following him means walking in humility, love, and generosity, and having a heart of repentance, and that compels his followers to take up their cross daily, partnering with him in his disciple-making mission. Those who reject Jesus, on the other hand, receive a fate worse than poverty, sickness, familial rejection, and even death. Rejecting him means aligning with Satan, along with proud hypocrites, heretical teachers, fake converts, and false disciples. It means wanting the benefits Jesus provides without being willing to bear his cross. Such rejection rightly merits eternal judgment and shame. That's the message of the book of Luke. Again, the simplest way to say it is that top line. Jesus fulfills God's plan by seeking and saving the lost. And so how do we respond to the message of this book? How should you respond to the message of this book? I think it would be foolish for us to conclude that Luke had no aim in mind. Every author, you have an aim in mind when you send an email or when you write a letter to an editor, anything along these lines. So how do we respond to the message of this book? How would Luke have wanted Theophilus to respond? I think one answer would be, you go and you tell the truth of this story. We can call that evangelism, we can call that missions, we can call it proclaiming or preaching or any number of other terms, many of which Luke himself uses, but we tell the truth to other people. I think it's obvious that this is what happened when you read the book of Acts. They concluded, we should go and tell people. They even say something like, we can't help but tell what we have seen and what we have heard. And so with evangelism or missions in mind, I want to read a section. I know I just read a long document, but if you'll give me a few minutes to read a brief story from a book called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. And he starts this book off by saying, let me tell you an amazing story about a person you want to be like. John Harper was born in a Christian home in Glasgow, Scotland in 1872. When he was about 14 years old, he became a Christian himself, and from that time on, he began to tell others about Christ. At 17 years of age, he began to preach, going down the streets of his village and pouring out his soul in passionate pleading for men to be reconciled to God. After five or six years of toiling on street corners, preaching the gospel and working in the mill during the day, Harper was taken in by the Reverend E.A. Carter of Baptist Pioneer Mission in London. This set Harper free to devote his whole time and energy to the work so dear to his heart, evangelism. Soon, in September 1896, Harper started his own church. This church, which he began with just 25 members, numbered over 500 by the time he left 13 years later. During this time, he had been both married and widowed. Before he lost his wife, God blessed Harper with a beautiful little girl named Nana. Harper's life was an eventful one. He almost drowned several times. When he was two and a half years of age, he fell into a well but was resuscitated by his mother. At the age of 26, he was swept out to sea by a reverse current and barely survived, and at 32, he faced death on a leaking ship in the Mediterranean. If anything, these brushes with death simply seemed to confirm John Harper in his zeal for evangelism, which marked him out for the rest of the days of his life. While pastoring his church in London, Harper continued his fervent and faithful evangelism. In fact, he was such a zealous evangelist that the Moody Church in Chicago asked him to come over to America for a series of meetings. 
He did, and they went well. A few years later, Moody Church asked him if he would come back again. And so it was that Harper boarded a ship one day with a second-class ticket at Southampton, England, for the voyage to America. Harper's wife had died just a few years before, and he had with him his only child, Nana, age six. What happened after this we know mainly from two sources. One is Nana, who died in 1986 at the age of 80. She remembered being woken up by her father a few nights into their journey. It was about midnight, and he said that the ship they were on had struck an iceberg. Harper told Nana that another ship was just about there to rescue them, but as a precaution, he was going to put her in a lifeboat with an older cousin who had accompanied them. As for Harper, he would wait until the other ship arrived. The rest of the story is a tragedy well known. Little Nana and her cousin were saved, but the ship they were on was the Titanic. The only way we know what happened to John Harper after is because in a prayer meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, some months later, a young Scotsman stood up in tears and told the extraordinary story of how he was converted. He explained that he had been on the Titanic the night it struck the iceberg. He had clung to a piece of floating debris and the freezing waters. Suddenly, he said, a wave brought a man near, John Harper. He, too, was holding a piece of wreckage. He called out, Man, are you saved? No, I am not, I replied. He shouted back, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The waves bore Harper away, but a little later he was washed back beside me again, the man said. Are you saved now? He called out. No, I answered. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then losing his hold on the wood, Harper sank. And there, alone in the night with two miles of water under me, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. So church, I urge you to make much of Christ by telling the truth to sinners who, whether they realize it or not, are very close to their dying days. Respond through evangelism. Respond through worship. We already talked about this a little bit. One of the simplest ways to bear that out is by being a part of a healthy church that preaches the Word of God and makes the Gospel clear one week after another. And I want to urge you to live out your church membership, whether that be here or whether that be part of another healthy church where you hear the same Gospel that you hear here. here. And then finally, to take your discipleship seriously, but also to take the discipleship of other Christians seriously. This is what we talked about at our workshop that we hosted on Thursday with Tony Payne from Australia. And I want to encourage you perhaps just to consider as part of taking your discipleship seriously and taking the discipleship of one other person seriously that you begin reading the Bible with just one other person. And so maybe what you could do is say to a coworker, hey, would you be interested in having our lunch break at the same time and when we do, maybe we could read through the Gospel of Luke together and just read as long as you have time during your lunch break. Well, one person's eating, the other person's reading, and so forth. You could do that with a neighbor or with somebody in your apartment building. You could do that with someone in our own church. So it could be either evangelistic or geared toward, let's just deepen our faith and our understanding of the Word of God by reading the Bible one-to-one. Of course, you can expand that as you feel comfortable, as you begin to in some experience, but one of the reasons I suggest this is, you know, we have a ladies' book study, we have a men's, or I'm sorry, I should say we have a ladies' Bible study, we have a men's book study, we could easily shift that into just reading the Bible together like I just described. But, for instance, right now our ladies' book study is on hold primarily because Bethany is ministering to her husband as, as she needs to do at this stage in her life. But that does not mean we need to put reading the Bible on hold. So, find a lady in our church and say, hey, I would love to read the Bible with you. What time of day works well for you? Or what day of the week is clearest for you? 
It may be that you get together at 7 o'clock at a coffee shop or 8 p.m. at a coffee shop or wherever else is still open at that point where you can meet in each other's homes or when the weather's nice, you can meet in a park. And all I'm trying to do is give you ideas that then you can run with about reading the Bible one-to-one. See what God does in your life. See what God does in our church if just a handful of us take this idea and run with it. Luke wrote this gospel to tell us that Jesus, the Messiah, fulfilled God's plan by seeking and saving the lost. And I think he wrote it so that we as Christians thousands of years later would tell other people that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that we will help Christians grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so that we will fulfill the one another commands the New Testament lays out for us again and again through healthy church membership. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for the book of Luke, for the Holy Spirit breathing these words out through Luke and for the way you've used them in our church in so many different ways these last few years. We pray that we would go and indeed grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ even more, not just through the next book that we'll preach through here, but every day as we soak in your word and let it transform us by the power of the Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.